I had a friend who was building a parsonage down in the Bay Area. Well, it's actually Sacramento. A parsonage, we, we used to call the pastor the parson of the community. He was kind of the individual who kind of oversaw rites of passage, like, you know, infant, you know baptism and marial, marriage and burial and those things. And so when they built a home for them, they would um, build a parsonage. It's where the parson lived. You don't see it a lot. A couple of times years ago when Carrie and I were looking at two churches, uh, they were considering calling us there. One was in Concord, one was in San Diego. And both churches were going to have to come up with about half a million dollars just to loan us to get us within like 10 miles of the church. So sometimes churches in those areas, because it's so costly, build a parsonage and then whoever is the pastor lives there. Well, this, this uh, friend of mine was the contractor down there, and he was talking about this problem. Is They would go over, you know, when the lumber yard delivered the stuff, it was like forever kind of like off a little bit. And you're trying to figure out, it's like, this lumber yard's perfect. These guys are great. And then when he found out what was going on is, is the lumber yard was operating from different blueprints and different plans than he was. So they're sending him the, the lumber from a, a certain, you know, set of plans that they have that were different than what he did. When that happens, you have chaos. It's a little bit of like what was happening with Paul in the church. He would come and they didn't have any sense of order. It's not that he wanted to give them this liturgy of how the service went, but there was just no kind of perspective of what needs to happen in the worship service. And because of that, these individuals were kind of more given to exhibition than they were edification. They were way more concerned about exercising their gifts, having their voice heard, kind of demanding their voice to be heard. And at the end of the day, Paul was telling them there are people who are wounded. There are people who uh, feel like they're not involved, they're not, they don't belong, and, and those kinds of things. And Paul's point was, if we serve a God who created the universe, and that universe is very ordered... You go out and the stars are in the same place. You go out in the morning and the sun rises. And it's going to rise tomorrow morning with slight alteration about the same time. In other words, tomorrow morning when you get up at 6 o'clock and you start to see the sun rise, you can guarantee that the next day the sun's not going to come up at about 10 o'clock. That God didn't create the world that way. The oceans, the moon, all, everything in the solar system, everything in the world has order. Paul's premise is this. If we worship a God who creates order in the universe, it only makes sense that we should have order in the congregation and the worship. That's what he tells us in this text when he says in verse 32, Two and following. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. Why? For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And in fact, then he finishes this text and he says in verse 40, but everything should be done in a fitting and an orderly way. In other words, we really should be concerned about what? Edification, not exhibition. And so when Paul was writing to them, his premise was this, what happens in the worship service what can we do in worship that allows our worship to reflect the very character of God and Paul identified three things in this text yes it's a messy text it is it's uh it makes us almost laugh especially having Carrie read the text 
But I want to encourage us two things. Number one is to approach a text like this with a lot of humility. Um, You you can, I I identified this week no less than 10 different interpretations of this passage. What does it mean for women to be silent? What is he arguing for? 10. And I'm not talking about liberal and conservative. I'm talking about stay in the highly respected writers, scholars of the New Testament that we would all say are conservative, all would with a high view of scripture. And you're going to get all kinds of views all the way from Gordon Fee, who probably wrote the most well-respected commentary on 1 Corinthians, who says that I don't think it's the original in the original text of scripture. And so he doesn't even, if you will, have it in his Bible. All the way to uh, women when they hit the worship service or when they hit the, the, the you know, church as it's gathered are to be silent. There are churches who believe they take this absolutely literally. I've had people leave our church because I allow Carrie or another woman to read scripture. We allow women on the stage to lead worship. We allow women to read this, you know, read, pray and all of those things. And I've sat with people and they have said, pastor, you're liberal and you know, the whole nine yards and all the accusations and I'm going to burn in hell and et cetera, et cetera. So people are all over on, on this, this page. One caution I would say is whenever you have a text like that, the people, conservative people are all over the place, probably should say to us is, I don't think I'm going to create an ironclad doctrinal position on a passage that hardly anyone agrees upon. But I'm also not going to dismiss it. I'm not going to take Gordon as much as I think Dr. Fee's work in First Corinthians is, is really unparalleled. I'm also not going to take his out because I think actually God was far more concerned about preservation of the scripture, not just the inspiration of the scripture, and God oversaw that. And so I would take this absolutely as the word of God. And as we look through it, Paul's trying to wrestle with this question, how does biblical worship reflect the character and the nature of our God? And he says, number one, is when you come together, your biblical worship requires your participation. Now, that may seem like an obvious thing, but it's really not. He tells them, he says, when you come together, brothers, every one of you should have a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. In other words, when you come to worship, Paul's point is, you should come with the expectation that I'm going to participate. I'm a worshiper. I'm not an observer. And when I come together, my passion is to be about meeting God, not critiquing the worship band. In other words, I'm not coming. If I go to a concert, I, I'm, I'm there probably not to worship God. If I go to Mumford and Sons at Red Rocks, that's a bucket list that I don't even really have. But um, if I'm to go there, to be quite candid with you, I'm not walking into Red Rocks to watch Mumford and Sons and go, God, I want to meet you tonight. I'm not quite that holy. I don't need that. I'm going to go because I just like their music. If I go to some place, you know, like Fiddler's Green for Need to Breathe, I'm going there because I want to enjoy. And therefore, if the sound tech is a bomb, then I'm going to be like, man, I paid 150 bucks for these tickets. I have a different expectation. 
I'm there for a performance and I don't mind saying it. And I want them to impress me because I like their stuff. No, the reality is when you come to church, Paul says, that's not, you're not coming here to critique. You're not coming here for a performance. Passivity is not an option for the follower of Christ. Now, these churches were different than ours. These churches almost exclusively met in homes. They were probably somewhere between the range of 20 to 40. They didn't have large homes like you live in. And the fact is, is when they gathered together, sometimes they would meet up on their roof because that was the biggest space they had. And those houses were not huge. They were, you know, it would be a large home that would be in the vicinity of a thousand square feet. Nothing hardly uh, other than just palaces, and there would be a few of those. Uh, but most of the folks that we have identification of in Scripture are, are people of average means. And so when they came together, they didn't have professional clergy. They didn't have people that went to seminary. They didn't have folks, and they didn't gather with, you know, 700, 800 people. They, they gathered with, um, it would be a huge gathering if they had 70 And so when they came together, Paul says, I I want you to participate. Can we have that same anticipation? Oh, yes. When you gather in your small groups, when you gather in your community groups, when you come together in the body of Christ, here's the question that Paul wants to ask. Do you come prepared not to observe? I grew up in the era where we had special music, choir sang, and and, and honestly, it, it kind of, I think, as much as I may have liked a lot of those things, it kind of created an observational approach to church. And then we moved into that seeker era where um, it was a flat-out strategy of the church to not sing congregationally. They didn't believe, especially men, wanted to sing at all. They never asked me. But, but, and so they would create songs, one, maybe two, in a service, not for anyone to sing, but for people to just listen. I'm not sure, sure how they got there, because they surely did not read the scriptures. Because Paul expects us to come and to bring a passion of a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. He expects you to walk into this place in your community group, in your small group, even in this service. Do we stand up for the whole world to hear us? Maybe not. We're a little larger than 30, 40 people. But the principle is still there. Now there's a tension. There's a tension in this text. And I think you know what it is. When we come and we bring that hymn or that word of instruction or that revelation, what we're bringing and what we understand is what makes the biggest impact in worship is when people get involved. But here's the problem. When people get involved, they bring what they like. It's not a bad thing until you become a multi-generational church. And then you got a problem. It's tension. It's not a bad tension. But it's attention. I was talking with a friend this week. He called me 
because I talked with another friend and, and I just felt like, you know, I, I, I've just been really, really thankful to God in our church. We had 17 people be baptized today. We had families baptized. We had husbands and we had grandfathers and fathers. And it was just a delightful thing. And we've had 74 people since the last week of January that have prayed to receive Christ in our church. It's just incredible. So I'm just sharing this with any person. And I've been on a lot of Zoom calls, a lot of phone calls this week. And so I've just been telling people. So on the way home, I think it was Thursday. On the way home, a friend called me and said, hey, I I hear you have good news. And I told him. And I was just like, you know, in fact, I I just pulled over, parked, and we just had a, a worship fest. I was bringing to him what? A hymn of celebration. I was bringing to him an encouraging word. And then at the end of our conversation, he said, hey, has Brad called you? I said, no. How come? And he goes, they bulldozed Galilee today. I said, what? They did what? He says, yeah. When Carrie and I moved out to Denver, right across the street from where we lived in Rockborough Apartments was this church, Galilee Baptist Church. When we moved there, I was enamored by this church. It was a hundred year old church when we moved there in 1986 and it only had four pastors. It was an amazing church, well over a thousand people. And my friend Brad, who still lives here in Denver, said he drove by and they bulldozed the building. Is the church dead? And he said, yeah. What what happens? Why will we close 8,000 churches this year? in the United States. I think there's some insight in this text. Paul says, I want you to bring, I want you to come to worship. And for every one of us, worship is a heart issue. And to be quite honest with you, the the season where we came to Christ and the music we sang and and the, the God that we fell in love with in that season, that forever will be our heart language. But then we have other generations come And they bring their heart language. And now we have the tension in the church. And what happens in a church is whenever the leadership says, this is the era that we're going to stop at. We're going to fix this era, whatever it is. It's usually about a 10 to 15, 20 year window. And whenever leadership of a church says, this is the era, this is the godly music, this is the theologically correct music, and whenever we fix that, that's the day the church starts to die. And it will happen six to 8,000 times this year. And it happened to Galilee Baptist Church, this church when Carrie and I went there. We were going to go there because Mr. Hook was one of the greeters, and he greeted Carrie. And I tell you what, he, he made Carrie feel like she just came to church with her dad. We got called to an inner city work, and that's where we went. But Galilee was always one of those churches that we esteemed and, and thought so highly of. And today, it's dead. And the building is demolished. And they're going to put apartments up there. See, Paul understands. If you invite everyone to be a participant, bring a hymn, bring a revelation. What's going to always happen is your church will always have new wineskins. It will always have a fresh vision. It will always have fresh energy. But it will always have tension. 
I was talking to my friend Rod off this week and I said, Rod, we were talking about worship and I said, Rod, are we ever gonna get to the point where we get this thing figured out? And he looked back at me and he goes, no. And I said, like, God, you just so discourage me. <laughs> I have two thoughts to people my age. I find it increasingly more challenging to worship. Want the honest reason? I've had 40 years of war, tension, battle. I must every weekend say to God, God, I will make it about you. I will worship you. If these delightful worship leaders give me rap and I pray to God they don't, I will worship you. I will make it about you, Father. It's not challenging because I don't love the, the other generation. It's challenging because as one dear friend who has been in ministry for over 40 years and he just, he got out and he said, he said, Mark, I, I, I find worship the most difficult thing. I just don't even like doing it anymore. He goes, I did it professionally for 40 years. I'm, I'm just tired. And I challenged him, you can't quit. You can't quit for two reasons. One is because God hasn't changed. He's still glorious. And number two, the church still needs your voice. For those who are older, your temptation will be to wear out. I'm tired of the tension because you've lived it for 40 years. The church will always have tension. Why? Because in the generations when they come in, they will always bring their new wineskin. That's how God meant to keep the church alive. And dear friends, if anyone, myself included, fixes the church at an era and say, this is the era we love and this is where we're going to stay, that's the day the church starts to die. It can't do that. On the other hand, can I speak for a second to our younger folks? We will hand the, the baton to you. We have to. If we don't hand the baton to you, we will bulldoze this church in 20 years. And you'll come by and drive by and say, man, remember when 700 people showed up and they had 18 baptisms? What happened? If the leadership of the church ever fixes the place and says, no new wineskins, no new hymns, no new music, no new revelation, that's the day it will die. And you will drive by on liberty and look and think, wow, I was there this Sunday. 18 people got baptized. And today, they bulldoze the place. We have to hand the baton to you. But can I ask you to do something for me? Don't rip it out of our hands. Don't disregard those who have walked in front of you. Don't disrespect them. Don't mock them that God is going to do a fresh new things. God must do a fresh new thing and God must do it through you. But as you take the baton and you run with it, run with it humbly, appreciatively, because that's what makes people like me as I get older, cheer you on. If you rip the baton out of our seniors and say, get out of the way, it's time for us to lead. They'll stay home. They won't raise a fuss. They're too kind and they're too godly. But you will miss their wisdom. You will miss their friendship. And you will miss their support. 
The church will always have tension in this area of worship. But that's why Paul put it in there. When you come, it requires your participation. But make it about meeting God, not about judging the performance. And understand it's going to take your involvement. And the older you get, maybe not for everyone, for me, I have to choose. I have to stay engaged. I have to invite the fresh new wineskin, knowing that if I don't, we bury the church. God forbid that we would ever do that. Second principle. Biblical worship is orderly and peaceful. We don't have a problem with this, but let's go over the text. Starts in verse 27. He says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three at the most should speak one at a time, please. And someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church, go home, talk to God. It's okay. And by the way, the same with prophets. When they speak, there should be others who weigh carefully. And by the way, if they aren't expecting someone to weigh and, and they aren't asking for that, they're not speaking a word of prophecy. They're simply grandstanding. Paul says no. No, a person should speak and they should say, let me give you a word that I think might be from God and let me share with you something that I think God has laid on my heart for you and I want you to weigh it. You see, there's a discussion. There's not a prophetic position like Amos, like Isaiah who says, thus saith the Lord. Those are done. This prophecy is, let me share with you. We went through that before. But that's where in the church, we, we have this beautiful respect of each other. But it's not some, I got a word from God, I'm going to ram it down your throat. No, no, there's order to it. There's peace to it. Why? Because that reflects God. That's exactly what the text says. For God is not a God of disorder, but of what? Peace. And when a person takes over... Without the spirit of humility to say, let me share with you something that I think might be from God. I want you to weigh it. But what does he give us? A couple of principles. Number one, two or three, and no more. We don't need seven or eight people in a small group going, I got a word from God. No, it's two or three. One at a time. And by the way, don't dominate the place. Have you ever been to a small group where there's a person that just doesn't know how to land the plane? And they talk, and they talk, and they talk, and, and they explain, and they give an illustration that you know is going to be a seven-minute story. And you're just like, wow. And Paul says, don't do that to each other. That's a disregard, a disrespect of each other. When you come into the place, come in with some humility and, and order. And, and one of you should speak and you should interpret. And the speaker, by the way, should never, ever take the position that I'm under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, I can't stop myself. Uh, no, Paul very, very specifically say the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. It means that no one should ever uh, come up. It, it does, should a person dance under the Lord in our church service? I would say yes. Probably everyone would be like, 
whoa, what's that? Because we're just not used to that. But is it biblical? Yes, David danced unto the Lord. Should a person get on the floor in the middle of the message and start laughing uncontrollably and try to convince me that it's the Spirit of God? No. Not going to buy it. Why? Because the spirit of the prophets is under the control of the prophets. The Holy Spirit doesn't move into your life and take over to the point that your volition is not in charge. No. Therefore, biblical worship should be orderly. Why? Because God is. God has not created a random, chaotic world. And he doesn't want your small group to be random and chaotic. He wants it to be peaceful. And ordered. Last, Paul says, biblical worship seeks and should seek to honor God and respect others. This is that thorny issue of verse 33, 34 and following. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches that are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, eh, they should go home and ask their husbands. Now, this is a messy passage. What, what on earth is he talking about? Well, we have a number of interpretive questions. Number one, we have to wrestle with. So get ready to kind of do some academic work. The, the first question we have to wrestle with is what do we do with verse 33? It is a hinge verse and it's really critical. Let's look at it together. For God is not a God of dishonor, but or disorder, but of peace. Stop for a moment. Here's the question. That next phrase, does it belong to what goes in front of it, or does it belong to what goes behind it? If it goes to what's in front of it, it reads like this. You can all prophesy in turn. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And that is how it is in all of the congregations. So no matter where you go, I'm not telling you something for Corinth that I'm not going to tell the folks in Thessalonica. God is a God of order and it should be respected. Ah, let's read it a different way. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, period. As in all of the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. You see, if you put all of the congregations of the saints about order, that makes sense. If you put it towards the women, then what Paul is telling you is it's not a situational issue of which I'm going to only address in Corinth and it doesn't relate to Galatia and Ephesus and Thessalonica. So where you put that line determines whether or not Paul is saying, I've got a single situation that I'm dealing with here and therefore First Baptist in Salem, you should not require women when they hit the sanctuary door or when they go into a community group, women, you shouldn't say a word. You should be silent. That's what the text says. So where does verse 33 fit? Secondly, what does silent mean? That may sound crazy to you. Why would we even ask that? Well, it's a big issue. Why? Because in chapter 11, Paul told them how women should prophesy and pray in the worship service. 
So if he's going to tell them that in chapter 11, has Paul had a change of mind by chapter 14? What does silent really mean? And who is the women to be in submission to? Is it to their husband? Is it to the church? Is it to this law? And by the way, um, what women are being addressed? If you take this thing literally, it says that women, if they want to inquire of something, they should ask their husbands. Implication is this. If you're married, you have to be silent in the church. If you're not married, have at it. You can say anything you want. Well, that doesn't make sense. Does it make sense to anyone that only married women should be quiet? That seems kind of ludicrous, right? Let's reject that one. And then another factor that makes this passage really kind of messy simply is he says in the text in verse 34, he says, they're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. What law, Paul, are you talking about? He didn't clarify it. Now, did the Corinth church know what law he was talking about? I'm pretty certain that they did. But we don't. So we got all kinds of problems. Paul, you told us that women should be prophesying in the church, chapter 11. We told, you told us that they should be praying in the church. I remember one couple that I was meeting with, and they left the church because I had gone ragingly liberal because I had uh, somebody uh, pray. It was a woman. And, and I said, well, I, I, let me go back. And, and they gave me this text. It's well-known text to people who want women to be silent. So we walked through that and said, okay, what does that mean? It means exactly what it says, pastor, if you take the word of God seriously. Well, I do take it seriously. So how about chapter 11? Do you take that one seriously? That one tells women how to properly prophesy and pray in the worship service. And this is what they said. Well, we think chapter 14 is clearer than chapter 11, so we're going with 14. All right. I love you. I don't know what church you're going to go to where your wife will never say a word. I don't think I'd like to go there. But if that's what you need, God bless you. So when you look at this text, it's got a lot of problems. And you might say, well, pastor, if, if really, really godly people differ all over the place, uh, why are we going to take a position on it? Well, we're going to do it as humbly and gracefully as we can. But to be quite honest with you, you should never take the tension of a text and use that as a rationale to just dismiss the text. It's in the Bible. So let's take a stab at this. What on earth is Paul talking about? First, let's go back through the issues that I laid. Verse 33. I think the NIV got it right. I think when they put it, as in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. I think he put that together with them. Why? Because Paul is trying to make a case, and he's already done it previously. Let's look quickly at chapter 11, verse 16. In chapter 11, verse 16, it says, If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. When Paul gets to those issues that are kind of tension-filled and maybe be a little controversial. He's trying to help them understand, I'm not telling you something that's just for Corinth. I'm not picking on you. 
I'm not utilizing the women of your church or the men of your church as rationale for going after you. This as is, is, it is uh, excuse me, I'll get it out. This is the way it is in all of the other churches. So in other words, I'm not principally picking something out. And also, by the way, it seems clear to me that it is beyond situational, meaning it applies to us as it did to them. Secondly, when you look at this text, some argue that the women of this area were uneducated and therefore that's why Paul said to them, don't speak because you don't have any formal theological education. If the grounds of uneducation was the reason that they were to be silent, most of the guys should be quiet too. And it's simply because none of them, very few of them had rabbinical training. Very few of them had training in the scriptures. They were brand new believers. And so if a lack of education was the rationale for why they should be quiet, here's the problem. Guys, we don't get to say anything either. Another issue, um, some suggested that the uh, synagogue was made up when you want, went into the synagogue men would sit on one side and women would sit on the other and, and uh, what would happen some are suggesting is that the women were sitting over here and somebody would give a revelation and this wife was saying to her husband hey honey what do you think of what Harry just gave do you think that's a revelation of God and she's sitting there talking over and it became what Paul says disruptive to the service The assumption of that is that the house church took on the form of the synagogue and there's really no evidence of that. There's no evidence as you get into the early church that they took on the seating arrangement of the synagogue. And so that's an argument or an assumption of silence that's really not supported as best we can look at how they gathered. So what do we do with this? It's a difficult place. But I think the scriptures help us. What is Paul concerned about? He's concerned about order. And he says, this law that exists, be in submission. So what he is identifying is there is a behavior that is happening in the service where married women are dethroning their husband's authority. And Paul says, I do not allow that. What might it look like? If you could imagine I'm preaching and I'm giving an interpretation of this text. And meanwhile, my wife, she goes over and she grabs Pastor Jeff right in the middle of the sermon. And they start having a conversation over there. Jeff, do you know what it's like to live with that Yahoo? That guy is so half-baked this week. You need to get up there and correct this thing. And she is just having at it. And she gets not only Jeff, but she gets Audrey because Audrey's family and Audrey's smart. And then she looks over there, holy cow, Tyler's here. And the next thing you know, what is she doing over here? She's weighing my teaching. That's supposed to happen. But it should not happen where a wife is weighing the authority of her husband's words and position. 
That explains why Paul talks about a wife submitting to her husband. It makes sense now why it's not a single woman. It's because she doesn't have a husband that she can dishonor. What's happening in the church and what's the law? The law is the nature of God. What is that? That the marriage reflects the triune God. And when the marriage reflects the nature of God, it brings order in the home. It brings order in the church. And when a wife is operating in her freedom outside of that law, and she is now weighing her husband's words publicly and challenging him publicly, and dethroning him publicly, Paul says, I don't allow that. And frankly, nor should we. We should never allow a wife and quite candidly a husband to dishonor their spouse publicly. We should not allow what God says is an order of the triune God that he wants to see show up in the church. And Paul says, I don't allow that disruption. Why? Because if the woman has a question about her husband's revelation, trust the body of Christ. Trust the rest of the folks that will weigh your husband's words. But don't embarrass him, don't disregard him, don't disrespect him by standing up and weighing his words and authority in front of the rest of the congregation. That's dishonoring. And Paul says, I won't allow that. So biblical worship seeks what? It it seeks to honor God. And it respects other people. Namely, in this last one, it respects the marriage. You see, a gift is not something that you should exercise at the expense of your marriage. A spiritual gift of interpretation, revelation, should never be exercised in a way that you publicly shame and disregard your husband. Paul says, "Ah, we're not going to allow that. There's a law. And the law is principally is that worship should reflect the nature of God. There's order. The son submits to the father. The Holy Spirit submits to the sending of the father and the son. The son comes to fulfill that which the father has given to him. And it doesn't mean the wife doesn't have a voice. In fact, if a husband's wise, he elevates his wife's voice as the father elevated the son's voice. If the husband is wise, he calls out her voice. He beckons it. He, Ephesians 5.21, chooses in wonderful times to submit to her wisdom. But in the public setting, a wife should never come in the position of becoming the authority over her husband because it dishonors the order of God, brings ill repute to her husband and brings disrespect and disruption in the body of Christ. That's Paul's point. Just very simply, biblical worship seeks to honor God and respect others. There will be tension. There will always be tension in worship. Why? Because we will always have new wineskins. You should expect it. 
And the older you get, the harder it's going to be to live with it. You're going to tire of it. You're going to want to walk away. I'm done. And I would say as kindly as I can to me and to you. Fight through that. The body of Christ needs your participation. The body of Christ needs your worship. It's not going to be easy. Wives, it's not going to be easy to submit. There's going to be times where you think, you knucklehead, you really don't have a clue. Go home and tell him that. Have at it. Speak kindly to him. Just don't bring dishonor to the nature of God in the public service. Why? Because the church is to be a place of peace and edification, not a place where you live out the war of your marriage in front of people. When you do that, you dishonor your husband. And by the way, you dishonor yourself. But when we live with the tension of worship and the commitment of participation, you know what happens? number of years from now, if Christ doesn't come back, I'll die. I'll be in heaven. You'll drive by this church. It will have a new pastor. It will have new deacons. But it won't be bulldozed. You'll see at certain times on a Sunday, people flooding out this door. Maybe you attend here, maybe you won't. But what you'll see is a new wineskin. It's a church who's focused on Christ. Why? Because biblical worship seeks to honor God and respect others. And when it does that, it always has a fresh vision from God.